Wow, it's wonderful to be in the sanctuary and be with God's people this morning. As Father Robert mentioned, I've been in the process to become a deacon for a little over three years. And one of the beautiful things about it, it is that the process is in the midst of community. As it unfolds, and I'm so grateful for the council prayers encouragement of the ministerial staff and all of you, God's family. Very grateful for that. Looking at today's scriptures, I'd like to, uh, for us to explore a theme that seems to be running throughout the scriptures, especially 2 Samuel and Ephesians 1. And the, the theme that I see is a journey of worship, you know, beginning with Moses and the Ark of the Covenant, King David, Jesus Christ, and Ultimately, in Ephesians 1, God's grand, majestic plan for us to be a part of this amazing um, worship and part of his family. We see worship spanning the past, the present, and the future. And, you know, I've been really blessed over the years to be involved with worship. First, in 1975, when I met the Lord, I was on the little worship team in our church, and then I worked for Integrity Music for nine years uh, during the pretty exciting time of, of praise and worship music that was being recorded and developed, and I worked with a lot of songwriters, and, and then my own company where I worked with song administration and music licensing. Uh, and then in 19, uh, 19, it wasn't 19, it was 2001, I met Gary Godwin, and we married, and Life as I knew it changed in a wonderful way. Um, Gary used to say he was a cradle Episcopalian. Some of you know, knew Gary before he passed away in 2015. But um, So one Sunday morning at church when we were first married, after the service, he asked me, what did you think of the service, you know? And I said, well, I really liked the worship, uh, you know? And, and what I meant by that was the songs that we had sung. And he looked kind of puzzled about that. And he said, well, what do you mean? Because all of the liturgy is worship, the entire service. And that kind of rocked my world. And it kind of helped me take a different look at worship as being much broader context than I had, you know, maybe thought of as just singing a song. Let us open in prayer. Open our ears, O Lord, to hear your word and know your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our wills, that we may serve you today, now, and always. Amen. What are some of the ways that we worship besides on Sundays? I kind of want to open this up and get a little bit of feedback from you. What do you think of when you think of worship as far as outside of this sanctuary? What does worship mean to you? Art, beautiful, yeah, creating beautiful works of art, wonderful, I love that. Yes, because, you know, God is the creator and we were made in God's image to create, create beauty and goodness. What else do you think of? Thanksgiving, yeah, so throughout our, our daily lives, just giving and offering Thanksgiving, what else? Prayer, yes, we can do that individually and, of course, corporately. Service to others, yes. So there's so many ways. Yes, back there. Pat.
Exactly. Well, you just summed up my sermon, so that's good. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. <laughs> yeah, our whole lives are worship, right? And we do, this, we do this together. We do this in community. And, you know, I think that through worship, we get a glimpse of God's majestic, eternal, magnificent future for us. That, you know, we get a glimpse into that heavenly, eternal place, which keeps us focused on the hope beyond the veil, the hope of glory. You know, when I first started reading the Psalms in 1970, in the 1970s, I connected and identified immediately with David. And I think the Psalms really spoke to me because he was so honest and gut-wrenching honest at times and very vulnerable with God. And to know that even though he was a sinner, he was a man after God's own heart. That really spoke to me, that God calls us to be really honest with, with him, but also with one another. I discovered one psalm that I just knew was written just for me, and that was Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song of praise in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will fear, will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That was and is my testimony, and probably most, you know, most of you, your testimony. So I think the compelling reason to worship is reflected in this psalm, because I was completely lost, sinking, no way out when Jesus came and rescued me, made me safe and secure, and he gave me a new song to sing the praise of his glory that others might hear and be drawn to that song of praise. The praise of his glory, we hear that three times in Ephesians 1, and I want us to think about that, that we are called to be the praise of his glory. So today's scriptures invite us to consider and wonder why God calls us to worship. And worship is a huge topic, so, you know, I'm not going to be able to take all that on today. I'm going to boil it down to a few points that I hope will speak to you. One of those, at least, will speak to you today, wherever you are and what your needs are. The first point I want to make is that God is with us, and he pursues relationship with us. Let's begin by looking at David and the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 6. What's going on here in the story of David and his reign as king of Israel? And what's the significance of the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem, the city of David? We first need to take a quick journey back about 500 years to Moses on Mount Sinai as he was leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to understand the origin and the purpose and the importance of the ark. In Exodus 25, we see that Moses has gone back up on Mount Sinai for the second time after the Israelites called out for Aaron to make a golden calf for them to worship. He receives the tablets of stone with the covenant and laws written on them, and God gives him some instruction, very detailed instruction on how to build this ark where he will be present and meet with them. I love that God doesn't just give the law without his presence. Let's just think about that. I mean, we can't really walk in the law and the commandments without his presence. In Exodus, God says to Moses, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. 
But in an even more specific way, the ark served as a place of the presence of God. In Exodus 25, 22, he says, There I will meet with you on the ark of the testimony I will speak with you. What was in the ark? Well, we know the commandments, the law was in the ark. There was also a jar of manna as a reminder of God's daily provision for us. And there was Aaron's rod, which was used to lead and guide and protect the people. All of these things have to do with relationship, God's relationship with us and our relationship with God's people. You know, we think we have trouble with relationships today. And can you imagine God, through Moses, leading one million people through the wilderness? I've thought about that a lot. I mean, it's like, how in the world could you do that? I mean, just trying to get this small group of people together is a challenge, right? Um, and especially, these were humans who had been in Egypt. They'd been enslaved, and they really didn't know how to live with freedom. It's really quite remarkable when we think about God's desire to meet with us. The ark was a tangible, visible sign of an invisible grace, a shadow of things to come, certainly the ministry of Jesus Christ, where God made an audacious covenant to step out of divine space and time to meet with his creation, his people, in a 52 by 31 by 31 inch golden box. It was a foreshadowing of Emmanuel descending from heaven 1,500 years later, as Jesus came to earth, he leaves the majesty of heaven and steps out of divine place with the Father and Holy Spirit into the helpless form of a tiny baby in the confining limits of our world. The word incarnate, the same word that was in the ark and that created all things visible and invisible, Jesus Christ came and within those confines just to be with us and meet with us. There's no question about God's desire to be with us, to know us intimately. The second thing is, as humans, we are designed to worship. We're going to worship something or someone. And probably if you're like me, you know that sometimes we're prone to worship things that aren't necessarily great for us, like material possessions, maybe a boat that you just bought, or your work or your profession or information, and even friends and family. Remember the golden calf that the Israelites cried out to worship because Moses delayed coming down from Mount Sinai. But God calls and invites us to come and worship the creator of all things, visible and invisible, in heaven and earth. Jesus sums up what is true worship in the keeping of the first and second commandments. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and uh, strength. Both commandments are relational, once again. Jesus talks about the importance of what our hearts focus on, what we treasure, in Matthew 20, uh, 6, verse 20 through 23. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So it's really important what we worship. And God calls us and invites us to worship him, to come up to a much higher place. We long for connection, a sense of being known, 
that happens in worship. Worship also brings healing and unity. How do we heal from shame and guilt and sin? Now, that probably involves an entire study or sermon, so I'm not going to take much time on that today. But that is an aspect of what happens in community in the midst of worship. Because one, that's one important aspect, to be seen, heard, understood, and known. And by listening to one another's stories, the good, bad, and the ugly, we begin to know one another, we begin to heal. David had to experience healing from guilt and shame before he could bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem to be at the center of the Israelites' lives. We didn't read this section, but part of Sam, 2 Samuel uh, was an attempt to bring the ark into the city, but you know, David did not follow God's requirements and instructions, and because of that, there was someone was, was killed and there was a delay. So he had to go through some healing himself before he could bring the ark into the city. He was honest with God and with the people about his emotions. He was, he was feeling confusion and anger and frustration and hurt. And he was honest with God and with the people. Then David was humble and obedient to God's word and waited for the Lord to show him the right, the right way to bring the ark of his presence into the center of Israel's life. And he did all of this in the midst of community. That's what we are called to do as well. Healing comes in the midst of community as we worship. Something that is really important, and Father Robert mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in the study of the Holy Spirit, which I love, is the Holy Spirit is working in us to bring unity. The Israelites carried the ark in front of them from place to place. It was always at the center or the front of their, their travels and everything they did. The ark was at the, at the front when Joshua led them across the Jordan and the waters parted. The ark was at the front of them when they went around Jericho seven times, around the wall, and it came down. It was at the center of their lives. God's desire and purpose and plan was to unify his people as the ark was at the center of Israel with the 12 tribes encamped around the tabernacle in specific order. So that was always part of God's plan. After 15 years of battle and victory over the Philistines, David longs to renew the nation in the worship of Yahweh. And to do that, he wants to bring the long-neglected ark into his new capital city as a sign that the Lord, the true king over Israel, is once again in the midst of his people. He also wants to unite the people with Jerusalem as both their political and religious center. So this is not a private event with just a few close chosen friends. He gathers all the tribes, the priests, men and women, all of the people together for this celebration. God's desire, purpose, and plan is to unify us in relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through worshiping the Creator. And as we move from the past and the present and we begin to look at the future, our futures, we look at Ephesians 1, and we are a part of God's eternal purpose the mystery of God's will to bring all things together in heaven and things on earth. 
Ephesians 1. That, that whole chapter is something I just could meditate on every day because there's so much there. And yes, Paul hardly ever uses a comma or a period, you notice. It's just kind of verse 1 to verse 45. I mean, it's just because he is trying to communicate something that is really difficult. It's this glimpse of the eternal. So one of the things in Ephesians 1 that is repeated by Paul is that we might be the praise of his glory. He made, us to be, he, na- he made known to us the mystery of his will to bring all things together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth, so that we who were the first hope in Christ would exist to the praise of his glory. So what does it mean for us to be the praise of his glory? Well, I think all the things we've talked about are a part of that. I think Paul is saying that we are worship, that as we worship the one triune God in spirit and truth and allow the Holy Spirit to bring unity to the body, we magnify, enlarge, and reflect God's glory. Now, that's a calling worthy of worship and giving our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. One of the beautiful things I think Father Robert has mentioned before is that, you know, God is calling us to be a part of this relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks about the communion of the Trinity, the unity and indwelling, that I am in the Father and he is in me. This is in John 14. And the the Greek word there is perichoresis. And I love that because it indicates, you know, being around or to go or to come, two sides of the same coin. But there's also, the, the term refers to dancing, like there is a dance with the triune God. Father Roberts mentioned this before, and probably pronounced the word better than I did. But, you know, it, it, it recalls kind of this image of this relationship of joy and thanksgiving and love in the triune God. And that's what we're invited and called to in worship, that we might enter into that divine dance with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we look at the past, present, and eternal future, we see God's faithfulness and provision for us, that God is with us. He desires and initiates relationship with us, that we are created to worship and to be image bearers of God. And as we worship together, there is healing and unity. We are part of God's mysterious purpose to bring all things together, things in heaven and things on earth. Let us pray. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for this time of worship, and we are grateful that you want to be with us and bring us into relationship with yourself. May our lives be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in your sight, and reflect true worship as you heal, unify, and bring us together into that holy divine dance with you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.